What's up, guys? Welcome back to the East Coast Podcast. We have a super special guest today, episode five, a Canadian icon, legend, classified. Thanks for coming in, bro. Thank you, man. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Man, so what a career you've had. I'm really stoked to hear more about it. What's new? Uh, COVID. Yeah. So I kind of put a damper on everything like most people in the world. But for me, I've been home working on this acoustic album, which is... Um, it's kind of like a, a broken down version from songs of like, you know, my history, last albums and stuff. So we've been doing them over just like on acoustic guitar, just vocal acoustic guitar, no drums, no big bass. And it's just, you know, something we've been doing even shows like that now is, well, before COVID hit, but sitting down at like theaters, people sitting down. It's more about the songwriting and the lyrics and it's just something we started doing. And I was like, man, this is, you know. For performing for 25 years this kind of felt like fresh and brand new and i was like you know older people coming to these shows you see people in the crowd laughing crying you know it's just it was a whole different vibe and as soon as i saw that i was like man i want to kind of do this for a minute and just kind of see sure. where we can take this so i've been working on this acoustic album that's done we're shooting videos now we're just kind of reaching out to, to certain guests like dallas smith nice uh he just did it over a course Jan Aird might be doing something. Oh, sick. Yeah, so just kind of having fun, making music, but trying to take some of these older songs that I thought might have got missed upon of what the lyrics were about and did them over acoustic. And then we got a tour for that, and then we got a book. I wrote a book. Oh, shit. Yeah, me. I guess I didn't. Yeah, COVID, man. Not busy, but busy. Trying to nice. basically try to prepare for the future is what I've been doing. That's awesome, man. Good for you. Yeah, so we wrote that book, and it's kind of like my life coming up, being a hockey-playing Canadian in Nova Scotia, discovering hip-hop, kind of getting into that, and then, you know, tour stories about being in Europe and Australia and going across Canada, meeting Snoop, Royce, and just kind of the whole come up and just things that I found were interesting we put in this book. So it's really, really cool. Yeah, How really, long have you been working on the book for? The book we actually started before COVID. Just, you know, and it was weird because I've never, like I make an album every year, but making a book was brand new. So for me, it was like, you know, the, the publishing company that's doing the book, they hired a writer. He flew out from Saskatchewan, stayed at my house for like a week and just talked to my parents, my wife, me, the boys, DJ IV, Mike, everybody, and then went home. And then we did, you know, phone calls over top of it, Skype or whatever, and then just kind of worked out what we wanted and where we wanted. And then he would write the book up. And, you know, he sent me the first chapter and I showed my wife and she was like, this does not sound like you, how you talk at all. So... You know, as soon as I got that, I was like, okay, send the first chapter, and then I'd rewrite it and like how I would say it. Very cool. So Sounds that was kind of the East process. Yeah, well, it's just I want it to feel like, you know, we wrote it in first person, like I'm telling the story. That's and awesome. I want to feel like, you know, people feel like they're, ta- they're, they're listening to me talk. I'm stoked to read that book when it comes out. What are you thinking on the timeline? Um, well, the acoustic album in the book and the acoustic tour, that was our plan is all those three things have to happen at the same time. Right now, it's looking like November of this year. Awesome. But just depending on COVID and touring and what we can do, so love that acoustic idea too. It really lets the listeners get into the lyrics of uh, of all your songs. Really yeah, so yeah. To hear that, and too. that's what we noticed when we started doing these shows. It was just, you know, at the club at eleven o'clock at night, everyone's drunk. It's loud. You have the time. You don't even hear what I'm saying. So <laughs> it was like we've done that for so long, and I love doing those two shows. It's just more about the energy and the vibe. But having it like this, it's like, yeah, it really puts a showcase on the lyrics, which I, I take a lot of pride in. So I want to awesome. let people hear those. That's awesome. And you touched on that. It's going to have some hockey details in the book as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah. My life was hockey. Like yeah. growing up as a, a kid, in, well, most kids in Canada, you know, I wanted to be in the NHL. I yep. was, you know, training every day. I wanted to be a hockey player. And then I don't know if it was once I realized, okay, probably not going to make the NHL. Like I was a leading scorer in my league, but host league. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not making the NHL, you know what I mean? So once I realized that was over and I started to get into hip hop, yeah. I'm just a, a dedicated or an addicted person that once I get into something, I just go full Hold into up. it. So awesome. as soon as I got into music, it was like hockey, into music, and it's been like that since I was 15. Wow, who's your hockey team? 88 Edmonton Oilers. Oh, okay. That's a classic. That's, <laughs> yeah, what, that's classic, Gretzky, Messier. I was a Gretzky kid, man. So when Gretzky got traded to L.A., I became an L.A. fan. Yeah, yeah. And then him. when that kind of wore off, somehow in my world, I became a Joe Sackick fan. So I was a big Quebec Nordiques fan for a bit. They went to Colorado. Yep. Was a bit of fan there, but I was bouncing everywhere. So I kind of don't have a team anymore. That's fair, yeah. They just beat up. Is that winner. your team? No, I'm hoping for Colorado, Nathan okay. McKinnon. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see play. Nathan win. Yeah. Oh, man, it's good to watch that guy play. I mean, yeah. he's on fire. He's so fast, and he puts the puck in that almost every game. So Yeah, and he lives in Enfield, so. Yeah, shout out to Enfield. Why yes. don't we talk about that, too? Like, you grew up in Enfield, right? 
And you still yeah. are there now? Still live there. So what, why Enfield? Why not? Yeah. You know what I mean? I guess it's just family, family and friends. Like I yep. grew up in Enfield when I was 18, finished high school, moved into the city, lived in here for like 10 years, started to make a bit of money. I was like, I want to buy a house. So we bought a house. And like I said, my parents still live in Enfield. My wife's parents live in Enfield. My brothers live in Enfield. My sister, my wife's brother, <laughs> who I four-wheeled, that's who I was four-wheeled last yeah, nice. night. Like we all live in Enfield. And nice. like a lot of my best friends I grew up with, I'm still best friends and they all live that's awesome. in Enfield. So that's awesome. where the hell else am I going to live? Hey, man, I mean, I love it. You're mean? super true to your roots in the East Coast. Yeah, so I love man. that. It's, a lot of respect you know, for that. It's a, WestJet's a cheap, easy flight these yeah, days. Right by the airport, too. Exactly. So, <laughs> and, you know, doing anything online now, it's not like you have to be in a certain city to do your business yeah, these days. So For sure. Why don't we take it back to the beginning and talk about Enfield and what the whole high school life was like for you there? Um, well, high school, like, we went to elementary in Enfield, but then uh, when, you, when you get to grade seven, you go to the high school, which is Hansie's Royal High in Milford. So, like, Enfield, Lance, Elmsdale, Dutch Settlement, Shubenacadie, excuse me, they all go to the same high school. So so for us, it's like up to grade six, you kind of know everybody in your school. Then you go to the big school that everyone's scared to go to in grade seven. And then it's, you know, people from everywhere. And you kind of, a lot of times your friends get adjusted, you meet new people and this and that happens. But, you know, I've met a lot of new people in high school, but I always kind of kept that core root of friends. Yep. But high school was cool, man. I was never like... I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't like a, I was like a C, I was like an average kid. You know what I mean? I think I made 70s, C student type thing. Yep. Um, got along with a lot of people, like the hockey thing. So I was friends with the jocks, but then I was getting to music at this time. So I was friends with the arts guys and yep. you know, people who did music. Plus I skateboarded. So I got along with the skaters and played a lot of hockey with the native guys. So I had native, like I just, I was kind of one of those guys that had friends in every All circle kind of thing. Um, not like a popular person or anything like that, but just, you know, got along with people, yep. so. And how'd you get interested in music? Um, music was always around because my dad was in a band. Okay. So, like, my dad's band used to practice in the basement all the time, and he was the guy in the band that carried the speakers and the mics, so there would always be, uh, like, the equipment set up in the basement. And never really got into music until I got into hip-hop, and I think it was just because it was not like I had to learn how to play a guitar or a piano to do it. It was just like, oh. Let's write a couple rhymes yeah. and, you know, start with me and my brother, just some basic ass raps. And and then we could record it on a cassette tape because dad had the microphone. And we, you know, yeah. so it felt like we were doing stuff, even though we weren't really doing anything. But for yeah. us, that motivated us to keep going and like, oh, let's yeah. get a pair of turntables. And, you know, then I met Joe Run, who was in Halifax, and he kind of introduced me to the, you know, a real rap scene, the Halifax hip hop scene where there was DJs, MCs, break dancers, and they did real shows. And. Once I saw that, like at Cafe Olay down on Barrington Street, that's when I was like, oh, moved into the city and then just got more involved in it, learned how to make beats and produce for myself. And, and cool. kind of kept going from there. When do you remember making your first beats and first raps? My first raps was yeah. when I was like 14 or 13. Jeez, wow. Long career. That's awesome. Yeah. Has, has Mike always been there by your side? Uh, to some extent, yeah. Like yeah. when I first started, like when I was like 14 or 15, we'd mess around and use doing stuff too. Older, uh, older brother always makes the younger brother do. <laughs> That's why Mike played hockey. Like Mike was a goalie his whole life because I needed a goalie to <laughs> yeah. shoot on. And, can't shoot an empty net. Yeah, you can't shoot it. Exactly. <laughs> so, and he actually did really good. He became a lot better hockey player than me and, you know, became like a really good goalie and played on like Nova Scotia, Canada games and oh, stuff shit, like wow. that. I think I could be wrong, Mike. I might be lying for you right now, but. <laughs> But no, he's, he did a lot with hockey, but it was the same with music. It was like, hey, I'm going to do this music thing. Hey, you should write a rap. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it went like that. And once I moved into the city, Mike was still at home because he's four years younger than me. So I didn't see him for a few years there because I was in the city and meeting new people yep. and he was still in high school. Um, but then once he moved into Halifax after high school, that's when uh, we did It's Sickening, which was off one of my albums a few years ago, like 15 years ago. And that was the first thing that he rapped on that we released. Cool. And since then, he's been, yeah, very vocal and, you know, opinionated on my music. Yep. And now he does all my videos. So that's de awesome. definitely very involved. He does all your videos. Wow. Yeah. Me and Mike shoot everything now. Like we, we bought the cameras, a couple lights, and we'll just sit there, like come up with ideas and wow. then go shoot it. And so, yeah, like every video we've done the last... 
like for the whole time EP, he's done every video oh, on shit. that. Wow. And then for this acoustic album, we have five videos done right now. Shout out to Mike, man. He's been killing it. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. I love the Super Nova Scotian video, the I Love It yeah, video. Yeah, he did all like, that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, man. Is that at your crib there, the I Love It one? Yeah, yeah. Nice. It yeah. looks good there. Have to get out for a visit soon. You, have you never been out? Just the once, probably like it was yeah, probably you were four, the studio. I remember four we, years we ago, yeah. the studio one time. Four years back. Yeah, well, you get the bike now, man. Yeah, we'll get the dirt bikes going. Yeah, out we there. gotta do that. So when did music become full time for you? Two thousand and four. Two thousand four. Or two thousand three. Somewhere around there. Um I was working at the Maritime Center. You know the, GTA, the yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, my nan used to work there. Yeah? All yeah. right. Well, what was her name? Janet Jones. She worked there for like upstairs. Yeah, yeah. See, I was probably like, so I got a job working help desk support. I went to Compton College for a year. My dad was there, so he got me an internship. Dad hooked me up. Nice. So I went in there, worked for free for four months, basically. <laughs> they liked me. They hired me on. And I was there for about a year and a half, making great money, especially as like a 20-year-old kid. And then they were laying people off the help desk. That's what I worked the help desk. People would call, hey, my computer's not working. Yeah. Reboot. How old were you then? Uh, I would have been 20. Okay. Yeah. 2021. Um, they were laying people off. So I knew I was getting laid off. They're like, hey, you're going to get laid off. You get a severance. And I knew I'd get unemployment for a year. So I was kind of excited about yeah. it because I was like, shit, okay, here's my <laughs> chance to. I have no work. I got money to support myself. So I can go hard at music for a year. Yep. And my plan was if, you know, once that year's up and that money's gone, if I'm making enough money to support myself, I make music go. for a living. That's if awesome. I don't, then I'll just put music to the back, make that more of like a hobby. But never went back to work. That was the last job I had. Where'd you get your hustle from? Hustle? Uh, I don't know. Like, my parents have always been hard work. My dad's always had a job and stuff like that. And they've always, like, when I was 12, I wanted my first dirt bike. And dad wouldn't buy me one. You know, you get a bike for, like, 300 bucks back then. And he just told me, go mow lawns. Go as the neighbors mow yeah. lawns. And that's what I did. Bought a bike that summer for 250 bucks. Um, but just, I think, things like that, just instilling that, that knowledge in me of like, if you want something, you got to work for it. For sure. It's not just going to get handed out to you. And I think that's probably one of the bigger motivators of just coming up like that and, and being raised to think, yeah, if you want something, you got to work hard for it. So your parents must be super proud of you now, eh? Yeah, I think so. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What a career, man. Yeah, it's been fun, man. And, and like, even when you were saying about like the hustle and, you know, how do you have that? Like this stuff's still fun for me. Yeah. You know awesome. what I mean? Like I still have fun going to the studio, throwing a beat machine, messing around, you know, yesterday a song topic came in my head. I started writing it down and I haven't wrote a new song in eight months. Like, I, cause I've been working on this acoustic album, which is yep. already wrote type thing. I'm just re-putting it together. Yep. Um, but I get excited about that. Like That's when this awesome. idea popped in my head, I was kind of like sitting there smiling, like, okay. Yeah. Think I, gotta, I think I got to write something tomorrow. Nice. So yeah, it's, it's, it's still fun. I still enjoy it. That's awesome. Starting out, who'd you look up to? Um, Joe Run. Joe Run, yeah. Who's like, for people who don't know, Joe Run is like a guy that's been on the Halifax hip hop scene since the early 90s. You know, for those who know like Stinkin' Rich, he's the one that taught yep. him how to use a drum machine, Buck oh, 65, wow. um, like recorded his first song for him. Same with me. He helped me do my thing. Hip Club Groove, an older group. He was like, and now, and Joe is one of these guys that's like a record digger. He knows all the samples and all this stuff. And I felt like he was always a guy that never got his just due, but now he does. Like, it's crazy. He's like best friends with Questlove, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Because oh, well. he started making, this is what Joe does. So there's an old L Cool J record from like the 80s. I don't even know what the record is, but there's never an instrumental released for it. So Joe knows, he can listen to a song go, boom, that's the drums, there's the bass Jeez. line. So he remade it, gave it to Scratch Bastard. And Scratch oh, Bastard played it at a party that Questlove, I might have some of this messed up, but something like this, Questlove and Jazzy Jeff or Z Trip were all there like, how'd you get that instrumental? Wow. That was never made. They're like, my boy from Halifax from remade this thing. That's crazy. And from that point, Joe's been in the circle. Like he goes to Jazzy's host, Jazzy Jeff's host once a year for these DJ parties. And then they invite Joe down because he's such a knowledgeable wow. guy. And he's just been in Halifax doing this for 20, 30 years. Jeez, shout out to Joe Ron. Joe Ron is the man. And you make all your own beats too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And so what's that process like for you making a new beat? Um, it usually starts nowadays. It starts with being bored, <laughs> go to the studio, roll something up yeah. and kind of sit there and play around. And yeah. that's what it is for me. It's fun until I hear that certain thing. And then I go, Oh shit. Okay. Now I want to get serious. And you know, then it becomes a little bit more like work, not necessarily that I'm not enjoying it, but it's like, let me really focus now on, 
getting these drums right. Let me call my boy to come play bass. Let me try to play some piano or put a sample on it. Get and David Miles in there. And do David the Miles definitely sent him something the other day to put some trumpet on. So yeah, man. You guys yeah, like that's together. the the whole vibe of just there's no real format to do it. Like three foot tall. I was watching the Muppet movies with my kids, and that sample came in. I was like, shit, grab the DVD oh, out of the shit, thing. Nice. I was like, kids, we'll finish this later. Yeah. Ran out the studio, <laughs> took the sample, put drums behind it. My dad came over, played piano on it. Wow. And, you know, so there's no real right or wrong way to start or finish the project, but it's, yeah. you know, it's just taking an idea and then expanding on it. I like those videos you put on YouTube, the making a beat. I've seen Make, that. Yeah, I yeah. love it. The one with Mercury's Get Ready. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's kind of me just trying to show the processes a bit of, you know, how this all comes together. It's not just me getting an email with a beat and I write a song and put it out and it's done. It's like yeah. literally me sitting there from scratch, starting it to finishing it, and then I'll send it to someone to mix and master, and that's kind of how it Very gets cool. done. Have you always used the same sampler or have you used different uh, different tools kind of to make different beats? Yeah, I've always changed. Like the first one I had, which um, Joe run, it was the same one Joe had. It was like a Yamaha. I had like four-second sample time. So this was like late, no, this was probably like 2001. But like you had four second sample time. So to sample something, you had to speed it up just so you'd squeeze it in the four seconds. Wow. Then I bought an MPC and then that was on a floppy disk and you could, you know, unlimited. And then now there's a new version of the MPC, which I got, which is just ridiculous. They just yeah. basically update the machine every four or five years with a whole bunch of new features. and Cool. Yeah, yeah. But I always stay in that MPC world because that was always my way of learning and the workflow always kind of stayed the same. Nice. And how'd you come up with the name Classified? Uh, boring story. Not even <laughs> a good story. Just sitting in the studio with Joe Ron when I was 15, um, when I was about to do vocals. And I was like, I need a rap name, man. Yeah. You know, every, now I just go by Luke Boyd because yeah. I feel like it would make more sense for my music even. But back then you needed a rap name. I remember I was going through the paper, saw Classified. I was like, class of my own. Yeah. Classes in session. Okay, shit, we'll go with that for now. And that was only supposed to be like a, you know, for that song or two thing. And then I just never Stuck. switched it, kept it. That's yeah. awesome. So what was your first breakthrough moment, your big breakthrough? I think when I got laid off. Really? Hey, man, <laughs> yeah. at the, at the I think time. that was, because I've never had like that moment. I seen an interview with Jan Arden the other day and she said the same thing. She's like, everyone asked what's that big breakthrough? And it's like, there was no big moment. There was a bunch of little things that didn't seem that important at the time but as it happened it kind of just kept adding up and yep. you know like i could see my first tour was the big moment but that first tour i was on a greyhound bus with my boy and we played for like 15 people tonight was that really groundbreaking probably not but the next tour we had a minivan and there was 50 people at the show yep next one after that we had the expedition we got the dj kept going up and then we on the tour bus and there's thousands of people, you know what i mean wow. so it was just like a slow grind to get where it was but yeah i don't think there was one moment where i was like except for when I lost my job. Like, I feel like that is the moment where it was like, am I doing this for real or am yep. I just doing this when I have time and, you know, working my other job? How old were you when you put out the Maritime song? That was like super iconic and a huge anthem. It was like 15 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah. on Boycott in the Industry, which was 2005, I think. So yeah, six, 16 years ago. Still played everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. and still like anywhere, I, like anytime I do a show here or in Alberta, I do the Maritimes. Yeah, oh yeah. Because Alberta, there's just so many Maritimes out there. And when they hear that, it's... You hear it in hockey arenas, Wanders games, like everywhere yeah, yeah. you go, the Maritimes comes on, it's an anthem. That's dope, man, yeah. Oh, I love it. And I video. made that when I started traveling outside of the Maritimes. Okay. The same reason why I made O Canada. I started going to Australia and Germany and just seeing people's perceptions of whether it's the Maritimes or yep. Canada. And I was just like, man, I got to say something. Like, that O Canada video was hype too. Like you got the whole nation behind you. Yeah, that. yeah. Every year on Canada Day, that video, that song is viral. On yeah, it's one of those ones too. I get a nice little check every July oh, 1st. It's like, eh. <laughs> every summer. <laughs> now we got the Christmas song we made this year. So I'm expecting <laughs> the same thing. That's awesome, man. So what's it been like for you working with different labels and stuff? It's been cool. Like most of the labels I work with, they're all Canadian. So I never had a, a big like horror story on labels. Like, cause you know, coming up, you always hear record labels ripping everyone off, terrible, blah, blah, blah. Never really had that. Like when I was signed to Sony, I got along with those guys. Great. Still do. Still talk to some of them. Universal, same thing. Um, but when I did sign with Atlantic in the States, that's when I saw how, that's where the movies are made of. Yeah. It's like, one. oh shit. Okay. This is what everyone's talks about of like. It's strictly business. No one gives two shits about you as a person. It's literally business. And once they're done with you, you'll never hear from them. Business again. all the time. All the time. Which was cool. You know, as long as I knew, I, it took me a second to realize that. And once I knew it, I was like, okay, cool. 
Yeah. That's how we're doing stuff. But it, it just, you know, they try to talk me, like just weird things. I've wrote songs about it, but like, you know, they wanted me to do a song with someone like Cody Simpson, which is whatever. He's a big artist, does his thing, but it's just not my type of music. And they yeah. would approach me like, man, you got to do this. The whole team worked on this to make it happen. And I was like, I never asked you to. Jeez, I don't yeah. want to do it. And they're like, look, if you don't support the team, it's hard for us to support you. Like, that's yeah, how they word it. Manipulative. Straight up. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool, man. Like, I'm good in Canada. I yeah. don't need that. If it happens, that's great. And it's yeah. thumbs up. But don't try to pull some shit Force on me. And exactly. Like, yeah. I'm not a little kid that you're going to talk and to do shit. Like, well, much like, respect for you for staying true to your roots. And, and I think it was just because I was older. If I was 19, I probably would have been like, yeah, like, Cody Simpson, let's do that yeah, shit. Yeah. But I was like 35 at this point, I think, 34. So I kind of knew, and I was already touring Canada. I had a lot of success up here. So I knew I didn't have to just do shit for the sake of it because it was like my last chance. It yep. was like, no, no, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yep. And that state's deal never really worked out that much. You'll figure out why in the book when it comes out. It's hey. all in there. It's some Can't some wait. weird stuff that happened. But yeah, yeah, it's, you know, most of my label experience have been pretty good except for my American label experiences. Yeah, man, that's really cool. You've worked with a lot of legends too. Raekwon, B.O.B., yeah, yeah. Snoop Dogg. Who's been your favorite artist to work with? Definitely Snoop. Yeah. Just because I grew up with him when I was like 14. Legend. Yeah, legend. And we got to do it together. Like with Raekwon, we talked on the phone. We hung out before, but when he did his verse, I wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Budden, Budden, we shot the video together, but he recorded Budden. his stuff by himself. Um, B.O.B., the same thing. We weren't together. Royce hung out, toured with him, done a bunch of stuff, but we that's never dope. recorded together. Yeah. So the only person of like that level I actually was there with recording and hanging and doing our thing was Snoop. That's dope. He was Which, in Nova Scotia too, wasn't he? That's where, that's where we did it. Unreal. He was Unreal. here for the Trailer Park Boys. So we brought a studio to him, hung out in the hotel and made the song. And that was like my number one list of like, if I was on my deathbed and they said, there's one artist you want to work with, it'd be Snoop. That's cool, man. What was that like working with him? <laughs> exactly what you think it would be. Yeah, nuts. Exactly what you think about it. Yep. Like just... <laughs> And we weren't even hanging out for like hours upon hours. We were maybe an hour and a half together, but we basically brought the studio to them, set it up in one of the hotel rooms. Then he came in. It was me, Mike, KI, and someone else was there. And then Snoop, his two massive bodyguards, our recording <laughs> engineer, and then Snoop's manager. So we all pile in the hotel room. Before I can even turn around, Mike's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? So I, Mike told me later, one of the bodyguards just kicked him out. And I was oh, like, shit. all right. So we're sitting there going. And and then at one point, the bodyguards, or one of the guys goes, hey, I, I think you guys should get going now or take off. And I'm sitting there like, I'm kind of <laughs> confused because I'm like, man, this is my song. Like, I'm yeah. the producer of the song. <laughs> and KI, my boy that was with me, is just like, we ain't fucking going anywhere. Yeah. And it, then it kind of got a little weird for a sec. Yeah. And then I was like, shit. Is this how this is going to end yeah. up right now? And then as soon as he said that, as soon as KI said, we're not fucking going anywhere. Yeah. Snoop was like, oh, it's cool. It's cool. And then kind of did wave the hand. The bodyguards yeah. were gone. And it was just Snoop, me, KI, and the engineer. Everyone was gone. Snoop pulled out blunts. He's like, took some Instagram. Yeah, I almost felt like this is what he does. Like yeah. it's kind of his, you know, everybody wants something from Snoop. Every time he goes, he probably goes through the same situation. It's kind of like they're, the way they do things. I'll yeah. go in the room. You kick him out if I'm cool with it. I'll let him stay. If not, just get rid of them. So, yeah, because he was standoffish until we said we ain't going anywhere. Then the bodyguards <laughs> left, and he was super chill and exactly what you think Snoop would be like. So yeah, like, oh, you guys want to smoke this? Starts passing the blunts around, cool. and yeah, so it was definitely a night to remember. No pressure is a big song too. Will you guys be working together in the future? Do you think? Who knows? Yeah, no plans right now. But that was just one be of cool those things see. I wanted to chase down. Oh, I can only imagine. You know what I mean? But yeah, believe me, I'd, I'd love to do some stuff. I'm always sending beats to his camp and stuff. So hopefully again, we'll do something else. Yeah, it's, and you almost worked with Nas when he was here as well, didn't you? Uh, I don't know if it was close, but I was trying. Yeah, 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 yeah nice. big He's Nas fan. Another like, legend. Yeah, like Illmatic's, if not my favorite album of all time, one of my favorites. So, you know, we were trying to make that happen, but it just didn't work out. Who's an artist that you'd want to work with next? Is there anyone that you've been... Probably, like, there's so many artists, like... Like, I'm a 90s hip-hop guy, so, like, the Red Mans, yep. Feral Mosh, Method Man, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But then, like, I'm a music guy, too, so, like, I'd love to do something for Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'd love That'd to do dope. something for for Kings Leon. You know yep. what I mean? Just something that's, like, oh, that's dope. The Dallas that Smith coming. thing that you mentioned earlier, that would be cool. Dallas, like, yeah, man. Like, he Canadian did over uh, Growing Pains with me. It's, like, an acoustic version of that song. Cause he has kids, and I was, like, reached out. He was super cool, and his voice sounds amazing on it. He's a legend. Yeah. What was your first major investment? Depends how major we're talking. Let's talk like 
the first thing that you had to be like, this is a big ass move. I don't know. All right, my cord, my cord Triton. I think it was two thousand bucks. Okay, yeah. And you know, I didn't have two thousand bucks at the time, but it was like a thirty or forty dollar payment a month. Yeah, it was the first. I don't buy anything on monthly payments anymore because I just. You know how you buy something new and you're excited about it, and two yep. years later you don't give two shits, but then Still you're paying pay. it off for the next five years. <laughs> I don't like that. Right that there. that kills me right there. Yeah. So I don't do that anymore. I, yeah. I save up until I have what I need and then I buy it. It's a really good advice right there. You've really always understood the business side of the whole thing. Have you always been able to live off your music? Since I quit my job, yeah. That's awesome. And that yeah. was your one and only job, eh? No, no. Like I was, what else did I do? I worked at Sobeys for a couple of years. Nice, yeah. Paperboy. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I was like a telemarketer when I was going to Compu College. I'd work that at the evenings or whatever. Yeah. So I was selling like, what was it? All carpet cleaning, like cleaning okay, yeah. your sofa and stuff <laughs> like that. Well, that yeah. will do two for 60 bucks. And, <laughs> and I did all right at that. But then, yeah, I went from there and then got a real job with the, the help desk, Maritime, Tell and Tell or MT&T, whatever it was. That's awesome. And then, then rapper. So what was it like for you when you first released your first few albums around Nova Scotia? I can't imagine how, how that must have felt. Like, what was the buzz like? Um, there wasn't a buzz. It was high school. You know what I mean? Like, my first couple things I put out was, like, grade 10, grade 11. It was, like, oh, recording on a four-track with Joe. Um, we press up 100 copies, and this was cassettes, like, the end of the cassette world, right when CDs were coming in. So it would be, like, press up 100 cassettes and sell them to your friends. And, you know, it kind of just gave me, a, I guess, an identity in high school. Yep. I was just like an average guy, and then I became the rap guy. And, cool, yeah. You know, but it, it was, and it, that's what it was. It was like the first CD or cassette, 100 copies. Second one a year later, I think we pressed up 200 copies. Again, the same as the show. It was just kind of slow grind. Yep. You know, trial and error, and boycott the industry. We're like my ninth and tenth album. So that was like, wow. that's, a lot of that's when the maritime, yeah, that was a lot of trying to figure out what I'm trying to do and get my sound right. And, and again, it was just trial and error, trying to figure out exactly what I was doing business-wise. Yeah and art-wise and creativity-wise. It's no pun, trial and error. Exactly. And that was the <laughs> first album that yeah. I made that I can still go back now and listen to and be like, I like this. 2006? No, 2003. Three? Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. Fuck, man. That's awesome. Uh, What's an early days mistake that you'd want to share with us? Uh, give me an example, man, because there's a couple fuck, here. We had, a, we had a, our website crash. We didn't get any sales for all of our Black Friday for like the whole... That oh, okay. Whole I guess anyway. not... You know, an early career mistake for me was not backing up stuff. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I've only ever lost one song in my career, but I learned hard that time. Yeah, and yeah. just now it's like anything I do, if I finish it, back it up on a DVD or a hard drive or whatever it is. Um, just dumb shit, though. Like, I tried to buy a laptop. <laughs> this is in the book, too. I'm only remembering shit that's in the book because <laughs> we just went through all this. Me and Jordan were downtown Toronto, and I need a laptop, and this bum homeless guy... Looks like he had drug problems. Comes up like, bro, I got a laptop, top of the line, 400 bucks right now. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm not the guy that's usually going to buy that shit. <laughs> but I was like, man, I need a laptop <laughs> right now. He's hitting at the right time. So I'm yeah. like, all right. Me and Jordan are like, run to the bank machine, get the money out. We buy it from him. And we start undoing it. And as we're doing, he's like, man, I had to seal it up good because I can't remember what his excuse was now. But I took it. I was believing everything this guy said. He leaves me, me and Jordan in the bathroom at the at the hotel, ripping this thing apart, and we just kept ripping it out and got to the bottom. There was just nothing in it. Oh fuck! So we chased him down the road, and he was gone. But he was quick, eh? Yeah, yeah. But that was <laughs> karma, man. That that was like a lesson for me. I thought, yeah. like, you know, I knew that shit was stolen. I knew what this guy was doing, and I was still trying to take advantage of it. So that's like one of those karma lessons of like, if you know your shit, what you're doing's wrong. Don't yeah. do it. Yeah, it's good advice there. How do you stay motivated? Boredom. Boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I get very bored easy. Like my wife will notice I'm just, I'll be in the house and I'll just, I'm walking in circles and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, especially with COVID life right now, you know what I mean? Like, like you can't take your kids nowhere. You can't, yep. there's no kids sports. There's just, my kids are sick of going for walks with the dogs. Like that would be our everyday thing. Let's go for a walk with the dog. And they're like, we hate this. And I'm like, I get it. I do too. But you know, just, you know, I'm, I think I am motivated because I'm one of these people that's constantly needs to do stuff. I think that's why weed helps me too, though, because mm -hmm. it slows me down and calms me down. Yep. Um, and then now, obviously, because my kids, like, I just want to feel like I'm still pushing and I'm not, like, I feel like I could be at a point where I just sit on my couch and watch a movie all day and I'd probably be all right. Yep. But it's not very motivating to my kids and it's not motivating to me. It's like, yeah, it's an easy life. But I, I notice when I even do days like that, 
I'm like a piece of shit the next day. Like I'm just like yep. wasting my life. So it's just to feel like you're not wasting every day because you never yep. know. Make the most of it. Exactly. It sounds cliche, but cliches are cliche for a reason. Yeah, you man, know what I mean? Sure. Like there's a reason why. And are your kids interested in music? No, been trying. Been yeah. trying. <laughs> <laughs> are they on any of your hooks, like three foot tall? Uh, Not three foot tall. Powerless. Powerless. I had all my kids sing the hook on that. The thank you to my Very hero. Cool. None of them did it right. So I got one of their friends to do it. I had all their friends do it too. And I had cool. to like, pick it out. And then they were mad when I picked a friend and not them. And <laughs> they're on the radio every day. Yeah, yeah. Not but me. no, they're, they're usually cool with it, like for videos and stuff. They're kind of annoyed with it now. And I'm like, hey, we're shooting a video. I need you to do this. I'm like, what? So now I'm, like, I got to like bribe them. Like, I'll give you 50 bucks. <laughs> Then they want to be paid, eh? Yeah, yeah. Now they're getting <laughs> to that point, but no, I'm I'm hoping someday they'll they'll get into like they're all creative. They're all like super artistic and draw better than I ever have could. So maybe we'll see some album art, album art coming yeah. soon. One of the 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 rap shit artwork. My oldest daughter did the artwork. Oh for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so great. And track she wants too. to design like clothing and stuff. Like she's cre wants to get in stuff like that. So. Nice. We should so, talk sometime. Sure way, I, I said, I know someone. Yeah, you do a classified <laughs> East Coast Lifestyle collab drawn by one of your daughters. Yeah, man, that'd be dope. <laughs> be cool design. She'd it. love that. Let's do it. There it is. We'll make it happen. So I'd love to talk about the meaning behind some of your biggest songs. Like we just spoke about Powerless. Why don't we talk about what the meaning is behind that? Powerless was originally wrote because there was a, a court case or whatever of, it happened in Newfoundland. It was a, a guy kidnapped an 11-year-old girl, basically, raped her. I don't know how long he kept after. I don't know if it was a couple of days, whatever it was. He got arrested. He got four months in jail and got out. And I read this in the newspaper, and I was like, this shit is crazy. And it just blew my mind, honestly. And I think I just posted on Facebook, like, did anybody see this? Isn't this crazy? And, like, shit just blew up. And then people sending me messages of, like, you have no idea. I went through the same thing. And I knew what happened, like, you know what I mean? Child abuse, pedophilia. I knew that stuff happened, but I didn't think it was near as common as what I do now. Yeah. Like, I think it happens a lot more than people know what it know what it does. So hearing that story, I just, that was the first, I wasn't even working on an album. That was from the Tomorrow Could Be The Day Things Change. I never even started the album. And then that happened. And Powerless was the first song I wrote for that album. Wow. So I just wrote the first verse, even the chorus, and, and this is in the book too, but like, People were writing and saying, hey, thank you for sticking up for us. And then the 11-year-old girl wrote me. Oh, wow. And she was like, hey, thank you so much. And actually, she said, thank you. You're my hero. I hope I meet yeah. you someday. And that's wow. what I made the chorus for Powerless. And wow. had the kids sing over. And, and you know, it was only the first half of the song. And then I was downtown doing something somewhere to show. And a, a Native girl, a young Native girl came up to me and said, hey, you should write something about missing Indigenous women and what these girls are going through. And it, as soon as she told me, I was just like, Done. Like yeah, I wow. knew when I was going home, that second verse was going to be about powerless, and then that's what I wrote the second verse about. Powerful song and a powerful video too. Check yeah, it out yeah. if you haven't seen it. Yeah, shout out to Andy Hines who did an amazing video on that. Yeah, that's an that's an awesome one for sure. Let's talk about Inner Ninja as well. What's the mm. whole meaning behind that one? How did that one? Me and David Miles, man, hanging out in the studio. At that point, me and Dave were doing a lot of music together. I was producing his album as well. Um, and we were that day we were working on his song So Blind, which was like a song that was on the radio. And then right before he left, he just like, oh, I got this other weird little thing. And it was just, bam, 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 bam. I read the rules. And he just said the first two lines. And it wasn't like I jumped up like, yo, that's a hip hop jam. But like as a producer, I hear shit and go, whoa, what is that? Like that sounds like nothing I've ever yeah. heard. Like that's unique. And then he's like, oh, yeah, it's just this little riff thing I had. So he recorded it. And the recording that we used on the real one is the same one. Wow. Like, we just didn't even try. He put the amp in the mic booth, and the mic was over there. And I was like, just let me record it rough so we can get a copy of it. Recorded wow. it, and then we ended up using the whole, that version. But And then he was telling me a story. The Inner Ninja idea came because he used to do a speech in the middle of his shows that he was like, you know, I had to dig down and find my strength and find my yeah. Inner Ninja. And I was always a karate kid, like ninja movies, nice, yeah. martial arts. That was... Besides skateboard and hockey and music. Ninjas. Ninjas, man. I was I, straight <laughs> yeah. up. I had all the weapons. I had the ninja suit. I had it all. So when he told me that, I was like, that's just funny. That that's shit's awesome. funny. Like, let's just, you know, it was kind of made the same as the Maritimes. The Maritimes yep. wasn't supposed to be this big hit that lasted for 15 years. Jeez. It was me and Spesh and a couple friends in my studio messing around. And we made the course as a joke. Of, you go, wow. Like it wasn't serious at all. Yeah. But then when you write the lyrics and tell the story, it's like, okay, now it became serious. Yeah. Everyone relates to both those songs too. The Maritimes, yeah. Inner Ninja. And you and, won a Juno for Inner Ninja too. Yeah. Yeah. Shout yeah. Out, man. It's huge. Thank you, bro. It's huge. And what about good news? What's the whole meaning behind that one? Good news. 
well, the whole meaning kind of changed because we wrote that before COVID. Oh, wow. We made that in October, November. Um, again, same kind of the story as, as David Miles with Inner Ninja. And the same story with Chad Hatcher and All About You. It was like I was in the studio all day with Bree. We put down six different songs that day, like just like a beat first course idea. And it was the last thing she had. It's like the way it always happens. She's like, oh, I got this thing. One, one thing left. <laughs> same thing. It's how All About You and Inner Ninja and wow. Good News all came together. It was the end of the day. And they're like, oh, by the way, I got this. And she played the, the riff, which sounded like some 70s soul, which is like my vibe anyway. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's dope. And she said she only had the first line. I've been waiting for some good news. Yeah. I was like, that's that's dope. Like yeah. I was I was excited about that. And even just before COVID, like there was just so much negativity in the world. Like everyone yeah. was just focused on negative, negative, negative. This sucks. This is bad. And I was like, yeah, but there's a lot of good shit that happens too. And so that's what that song was wrote about. It was like my daughter got her fate, her braces fixed. She's having a sleepover tonight. Yeah. It's not like big things, but like yeah. If you sit back and look at it, it's like that kid loves that right now. Yeah, That's more important than a lot. Exactly. You appreciate the small stuff. And then when COVID hit and, and good news actually came out, it just took on a whole different meaning because, yeah. you know, people not being able to see their parents and, you know, just the life that we were going through right then. It was yep. perfectly timed too. Like I know that that song. Not, not on purpose, people. but yeah, totally. It, yeah. And we almost held the song because I was like, I don't want to put a song about good news when people are losing their job. Small businesses are shutting down. People have no idea about the future. And then talking with the team and friends and stuff, it was just like, no, nah, man, put this out. Like, this is going to help people through these bad Positivity, times. Positivity, yeah. And when we put it out, that's exactly what like, yeah, the feedback was. Yeah, that song was, is so. still everywhere. I went to, I was going to like Subway and then I'd be at work driving my car, I'd be on everywhere. You yeah, know, yeah, so no, it's, people. It's still been, everywhere. Yeah, man. And we're actually getting ready to do like another push, not so much in Canada, but like in Australia, other places because COVID is finally, yeah. seems like it's getting, you know, yeah. we're getting over it, hopefully. And yep. then, you know, now it's time for some good news. So let's do it again. Love it. Love it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And what's the whole meaning behind three foot tall? Honestly, nothing. <laughs> it's weird how three foot tall happened. Like I said, when I made the beat, I made the beat, loved the beat, but I thought it was on some hip hop shit. So I, when I wrote my, I only wrote the first eight bars and I had that done for a while. So it was like from the crossroads, off road, dodging potholes in my auto, like Literally, I wrote a list of things that rhymed with potholes <laughs> and was like, yo, let me just flex. Because that's a part of hip hop, you know what yeah. I mean? Wordplay, multi-syllables. So that, that was my plan for that song. And I think I wrote right up to the, the Where's Waldo line. And I had that done. Took it up to Toronto with me. Was showing my manager some of the songs I had done for that album, which was like, Anything Goes, That's What I Do, Inner Ninja, and Growing Pains. And then I had half of Three Foot Tall done. And I remember my manager was just like, you got to finish this. I don't know what this is. And, you know, we put it out. And then, and this is the cool thing about art that I like was as much as I was just writing to spit some shit, people were like, yo, those lyrics hit me. Like oh, I yeah. felt like, and then that song became a bigger message than what I ever was wow. hoping it would be. But when I step back and kind of look from it, it's like, okay, I could see why people would take it that way with some of the one-liners in it and with the chorus about feeling alone, feeling three foot tall yeah. and, so that kind of that song kind of took on its own life without me even trying to have a big deep message in it. Another powerful song. Yeah, with without trying, which is, you know, for me, it, I love that. Like yeah. three foot tall, it shows is my favorite song to perform. That's awesome. Yeah, three foot tall is one that I do at every show. So is that your overall favorite song all time? No, no. I, I'd say it's my favorite song that's went platinum. Yeah, oh, like nice. my favorite hit. Yeah. But like Fallen, I love it. Yeah, it's That's what song. I do. Noah's Eric. Like those are my my worlds of vibes that it's like some chill shit that yep. not too in your face, talking some real shit, but just kind of riding the beat and yep. feel good. I like your early music a lot too. I find everything you do is timeless. Like The Hangover, All About You, Feeling Fine, those, Thank you, those man. OG early songs. Thank still you, man. And that's why I'm excited for this acoustic stuff. Like All About You, we did over a new version of that. And it, none of these songs feel like, eh. This doesn't make sense in 2021. It's like, no, every oh. single one of these songs could come out today. And most people, a lot of people will think they're new because it's not like we did over just the hits. We did a lot of like the B-sides, the more hidden songs. So I'm feeling like when we put them out, a lot of people will be like, oh, this is a brand new song. And it's like, no, this shit's been over 10 years. But, yeah. but I'm glad people are still hearing it like it's brand new. Oh, they're all timeless. Thank you, oh, man. They're awesome. What's an early obstacle that you had to overcome? Um, well, for me, this was before Eminem. So being white and rapping. Yep. Because this is after Vanilla Ice. So it was a bad look for like <laughs> 10 years to be white and rap. So just being a white guy, especially in high school, like I got all called called the names. Like some people support it, but they're like, uh, who's this wigger? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just 
ignorant, small town yeah. stupidness. Um, so there was always that. But then there was just, you know, being a, a rapper from the East Coast, trying to get love from Toronto, trying to get love from the scene up there. Like, again, this was we just wrote this in the book, but it was like, it took me years to get the respect from not so much the Toronto hip hop scene, but the industry. Yeah. And that's why I wrote Boycott in the Industry was the whole point of that album. It was like, I was doing tours across Canada, bigger than any artist from Toronto, consistently at this time. This was before Drake and all this stuff. And still would not get that love from like the industry. And I still feel like I don't at some times. And it's like, man, there's not too many people who've done, don't want to sound cocky, but you know, from the East Coast, we can't be too cocky down here. But I don't want to, I don't feel like a lot of the times they still give me that just to of like, this is a guy that came from Enfield, makes yep. all his beats, writes all his songs, never moved to LA or Toronto to work yep. with the hardest artists or the hottest artists and did it my way every time. And yep. I'm still successful doing it, so. Much respect for that, man. You always oh, stay true you, to your roots, and I know that the people love you out in the land of Canada because you truly are an icon that never left. Thank you, man. But no, and people sh and people give me a lot of that love out here. Like, and that's why I, one of the reasons I would never leave here is because it's my home, my friends, my family, but just people show a lot of respect. And not in a way of like, yo, you're the greatest, but like I can go to the grocery store and someone will come up and go, bro, love your song, man, shake yeah. your hand. It's not like, People don't act stupid. They don't get ridiculous. It's not like I can't go anywhere. I can go anywhere. I've always gone, and I don't feel like like I showed up here by myself. I don't come with bodyguards or a crew of people, and I can walk around by myself, and I don't feel like there's any thing I got to worry about. Not yeah. like that. Sometimes when you see DJ Ivy, they probably think it's a bodyguard. Though. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ivy and Mike and Jim, like <laughs> and they're all Mike, big yeah. dudes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, some big boys. Yeah, we've never had bodyguards. People have always asked that. I'm like, man, almost everyone on my crew is over six <laughs> foot. You know, Ivy can throw a big punch. Oh yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, have you ever gotten close to leaving Nova Scotia, like moving to Toronto or moving to California? No, I've had like people in the industry or managers and stuff suggest it, like more so earlier in my career. Like, hey, going to New York or LA or Toronto just to be more involved. Um, but it was never, I was never at a point where I was like, yeah, I'm leaving everybody I know because yeah. I'm chasing this. Like, I was always making at least a little bit of steps that it's never got to that point where I was like, shit, if I don't do this, this is probably it. I've never felt like that yet. But even tomorrow could be the day things change. When I started that album, my manager wanted me to go to LA. He's like, man, you know, I'm like, bro, I've been doing it this way for 25 years and it it's works. still working. Why? Oh, yeah. Why would I just, and I've seen so many artists that are like, oh, I'm going to LA and they just get lost in that world. Mm -hmm. They become one of 10 million people. Yep. You start working with the industry and the hot producers that are producing everybody else. And it's like, your shit just sounds like everybody else's shit now yep. because you lost your identity of what you were and what you were bringing. So, you know, a lot of people have gone there and had success too. I don't want to say everybody, but I've seen it go both ways. But for me, it was like family and friends and stuff was more important to be around than rolling the dice and going for yeah. it all. You've done an amazing job building a Canadian following. Everywhere you go, you sell out any venue you go to. So it's yeah, awesome and to that's see. And to me, it would, like how you were asking about advice for young artists, that's because of touring. Okay. Like yeah. making it real. There's a million people on the internet. There's a million people on Spotify and got a SoundCloud. And to me, the easiest way to separate yourself from that is do shows, live do shows. shows. When somebody sees you live and you talk to them and they have a personal connection with you, at least in my experience, I've noticed they'll support you till the end. Like, 100%. They're there for 20 years. I go to Calgary, Vancouver. I see the same people, not all the same people, but I see a lot of people that I've seen for the last 10, 15 years. And yeah. they're almost like friends now. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, oh, what up, bro? Man, I haven't yeah. seen you since the last tour, man. Yo. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just like almost friendship. You're good at connecting with them too. Like, I've seen you do kitchen parties and you roll into people's yeah, little yeah, yeah, houses yeah. and perform in front of their, in their kitchen. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. We did like a contest a couple of years ago where two people won. Yeah, we just brought the whole band and went to someone's house and they'd have like 25, 30 it's people unreal. and we'd just do a show there. Yeah, that must have yeah. been a huge hit for That was two. fun. Yeah. That's just nervous though to me too because I never know how that's going to go. Where are you going to go? <laughs> Whose yeah. house you're going to end up? Yeah, who, where, where we're even moving to, you know what I mean? <laughs> but every time we did it and, and it, you know, I should have known better, but most of my fans are pretty real people, pretty respectful people, and, and that's exactly what it was. That's awesome. Will we see any more kitchen parties? Never know, man. I'm trying to do this thing for Halifax. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's going to be called a kitchen party, but we got something planned that's coming to fruition, so nice. I'm, I'm hoping. It's going to be big, yeah. Stoked to hear about that. So yeah, that's what's coming in the near future? I'm hoping October 1st. Don't nice. hold me to that date because COVID life, but yeah. And I don't even know if I'm supposed to be giving out the date yet, but <laughs> October 1st, I'm hoping there'll be something smooth, something That's big. Awesome. 
So what's a piece of advice that you give up and coming artists other than touring and stuff? Is there anything else that you'd want to add in there? Um, definitely the touring thing, just yeah. doing shows, learning how to perform. That's how you make your money, man. Like yeah. you can make more money in one festival than you can make on a whole album cycle of how many albums you sold. Damn. Like it's crazy how that means nothing, but means everything. Like your music is everything. It's your calling card, but your shows is where you're going to make your money. So yeah. you've got to learn how to do shows. Yeah. Um, separate yourself. Don't. And I, I made this mistake. Like when I was 15 or 16, I watched rap videos. I see people rapping about guns and street life. And that's what I did because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And going back to Joe Run, I remember first recording and I was like, what did I say? Something about a gat and a baseball bat and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and Joe stopped the recording. He's like, man, do you have a gun? I was like, no. <laughs> He's like, talking about your hockey stick. <laughs> yeah, it was like, no hockey stick. And he's like, well, man, don't, don't rap about that shit. Like rap about what you go through. And from that point on, I was like, literally switched my whole thing. And I was like, yeah, and that's how I made my identity of being like a kid from the Maritimes that I'm not from the street, I'm not a gangster. I grew up playing hockey, you know. That's cool. Got into music and started doing what I do, and I'm here now. And, yeah, being authentic, being you, even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah, that's some big advice from Joe Ron in the early stages, that eh? That dictated my whole thing. Like that Different was path you could have gone on. 100%, yeah. 100%. That's cool. But just, yeah, if you can write songs that make you feel uncomfortable, they're probably good. Yeah, yeah. That's something I've noticed is like... Don't want people to hear this, and it's like, yeah, that's that's the stuff that people go. It's not just background music; they sit up and pay attention and go. Think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How long has it taken you to really? <coughs> how long has it taken you to really get comfortable putting in those personal lyrics out? It took a while. Yeah. Like it was even up to trial and error. I still wasn't doing it. Like I'd say, Hitchhiker Music was kind of which was music. album twelve or something, eleven wow. or twelve. But yeah, it took me a while. But that comes with age too. Yeah, You know what I mean? When you're 20 to 30 even, you're still, at least I was, like I was a late bloomer, but I was still insecure about what's cool, what's not cool, and you're still trying to figure that shit out. But once you hit a certain age, you kind of just don't care anymore, and you yep. realize, man, everyone's opinions doesn't mean shit in my life. Why yep. am I worrying about this? More good advice right there. Yeah, like don't don't worry. There's always going to be someone hating on you. There's going to be someone hopefully loving you. Yep. Um, but just as long as you know what you're doing in your mind is right, Fuck everyone else. Because there's been so many so times true. where I've doubted myself and then I just did it. And it's like, oh my gosh, imagine I didn't do that because so-and-so said, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's yeah. that's a bad look. And How do you like circulate your ideas? Do you just release things or do you have to ask like, yo, Mike, I want you to listen to this before I release it? Or do you are you just confident enough in your... No, your I have now? like a group of like six people. Yeah, Like Mike, my boy Simon, Owen, who's my keyboard singer player, uh, IV, Jim... David Miles, like there's a group of like six or seven guys that whenever I kind of get stuck or I'll email it to them. Yeah. Voices and like I sent them shit this morning. Is this beat better? Is this beat better? Yeah. Yo, do you like the way I rap <laughs> it on this one or do you like how I rap it on this? And yeah. so I definitely have that group of people, but yeah, there has to be a confidence in myself before I even send it to them to be like, yep. okay. But yeah, when you're the one guy in the studio and you're making the beats and writing and recording and engineering and doing everything after doing that for a few days on one song, you kind of lose perspective of, Shit, do I only like this because I worked on it for two hours? Yeah, but this one sure. I did for 10 minutes, way better, but I don't feel because I didn't work on it as hard. Yeah. So having those friends that I can trust. and But Mike's definitely the main one. So in the OG days, without social, how are you getting the word out there about your music? Calling CKDU and the, the university radio stations. Hustle. And hustle, man. Calling the stations that would play uh, hip-hop in Toronto and, you know. Man, I remember doing some, I remember Karis won, this was years ago, but he was doing this thing called the hip hop education thing where he was going to universities to speak and shit. So I called him up and I said, yeah, I'm a rep from Dalhousie University. And I was trying to book him. And so I was trying to get him on the phone. And my plan Smart. was just like, as soon as he gets on the phone, I'm just going to rap. He's going <laughs> to love my shit. But it didn't work as I wanted. But just things like that, That's man. Smart, you man. get creative and use your brain and just be like, man, how can I make this guy hear my shit? And That's you smart. know what I mean? Get on, get on your hustle and That's work. That's a good tactic that you just said right there. If you, yeah, you It can. might be a fraud. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what other strategies were you doing in the early days? You got all the way to Australia pretty early on, didn't you? Um, that was a link with Hilltop Hoods, who's like a group that's, they're like as big as Nickelback in Canada oh, fuck. for hip hop. Like they're the biggest group in Australia. I think they actually won group of the year. Wow. So they're massive there. So we, they toured Canada with us, with us. We brought them through Canada and then in turn, they took us to, to, um, to, um, Australia. But yeah, like we were taking them through Canada for like a thousand people a night. And then they took us through Australia for like 7,000 people a night. Jeez. It's like good trade. What was that like? It was dope, man. It was 
I think we were there for three weeks, but only six of the shows were with them. And then we just picked up our own little shows at bars over there and wow. stuff. It was cool though. Like it was, <clears throat> I'm so comfortable in Canada though, man. Yeah. Like, I think that's why I stick around Canada so much is we built it to a certain level. Like if we go anywhere, we know the riders there. We know a couple people in town to go hang out with. We know what the venue's like. Yep. which I like, I'm comfortable now. So I like to know what I'm getting into. Yeah. But when you're going to other cities or Europe or Australia, it's kind of like, see what happens when we get yeah. there. But that's exciting too. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of a 50-50 balance of like, okay, it's new and exciting or it's, I know what I'm getting into and it's comfortable. That's cool. What'd you think about Australia? It was cool, man. It's just people are very Canadian-like, I find. Yeah. I think they're the only people in the world that are sarcastic as Canadians. <laughs> that was like the first thing I noticed was like, oh, sarcasm, you guys do that here. Yeah. Um, and we went to like the, the Australia, there, the Sydney Zoo and shit. I remember going there with Brew and Chad Hatcher and Mike. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. See some kangaroos and some other. Oh, yeah, man, gorillas and stuff. And All yeah, that, those were fun, man. Those were early days of touring, of just to be fun on the on, on the road with the boys and in yeah. the hotel and just doing dumb shit. Once you can travel again, where are you trying to go? Well, we just booked a show for Calgary Stampede July 9th. Unreal. Don't know if I'm going yet, but I booked it. Fingers are crossed, eh? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how the whole COVID, Yeah. I don't know what's going to go on, you know what I mean? So. Have you been to Stampede before? Yeah, yeah. We play, I feel like we almost played every year. We didn't play last year. I think we played 2019. But yeah, usually once every year or two years we go there. It's a pretty sassy event there. They like the, the drinks there. The sun's always shining. Oh, man, it's crazy. It's crazy. You could never even do the whole thing. I don't think I've ever made it through the whole stampede. There's so much going on. And my plan was to bring the kids this year. Like, I was like, oh, shit, COVID gig, let's go. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. But Make then the I was like, read something of like the biggest COVID fest in the world, Calgary Stampede. <laughs> and it's like, Fuck. yeah, maybe I'll wait till next year. Yeah, that's fair. I've only been there once and we only lasted like two of the four days or whatever we were there for because it's just... You're up early and you're sitting in those bleachers and the sun's just smoking yeah, you yeah. and you're watching them hit the horses and like go around. And oh, like carriages. you actually went to the show and we stuff? We watched it, yeah. Yeah, see, there. the boys never want to do that. So last <laughs> time Kim came with me and we went and did all that and, you know, the yeah, the the real rodeo stuff. Oh, yeah. Like we saw all that. <laughs> Bull yeah. riding. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of good stuff out there. Hopefully yeah. get back soon. That's awesome. Well, thanks to everyone listening to episode five. It's been a blast. Thank you to Classify for being here. Oh, good, man. Be sure to check out his book when it releases very soon and check out all of his great music as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Cheers, bro. Thank you. Got my water.